In December 2020, Congress passed legislation banning so-called surprise billing in many scenarios. The No Surprises Act will protect patients against large and unexpected medical bills when they receive out-of-network emergency services, air ambulance transportation, or out-of-network non-emergency services at an in-network facility. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Andrew Ryan, Director of the Center for Evaluating Health Reform at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Dr. Ryan has co-authored a perspective article about new surprise billing legislation and its potential effects. Dr. Ryan, as you explain in your perspective article, legislation addressing surprise medical bills has been a long time coming. When did it first become clear that surprise bills were a problem, and when did policymakers start to pay attention to it? Well, I think it's been known for some time, I want to say over a decade, that surprise bills have affected patients. And I think there's been legitimate interest from policymakers to address the concern, too. Congress has introduced a number of bills before this one finally passed. More than half the states had themselves enacted bills. But I think as a result of a number of academic papers and the publicity around surprise bills, particularly in the New York Times, I think really elevated the salience of the issue and really put more pressure on Congress to enact a reasonable solution. You say, though, that nearly a dozen surprise bill proposals were introduced in the previous session of Congress, and none of them became law. So what were the sources of opposition? There were actually a well-documented dark money campaign that was actually funded by some of these large physician staffing organizations that benefit tremendously from surprise bills. So the fact is that Certain provider groups have gained a lot through this practice, through this as a using surprise bills as a business tactic, and they certainly didn't want to see it go away. So this lobbying was noted as being relevant in kind of making Congress think twice about passing this legislation. But I just think it was really hard for Congress to continue to ignore the problem in these egregious billing practices. So what was different this time around? Are the contents of this law substantially different from the earlier proposals, or is it just that the policy environment changed? Honestly, I think that the policy environment has changed. I'll tell you, it's not like everyone was thrilled about this legislation. The AMA never really got behind it and felt like this still gave too much leverage to commercial insurers even though as the law was revised, it was really revised in the favor of physician groups, particularly with how the arbitration process was structured. But I think nonetheless, in general, the physician groups tended to be less enthusiastic about this, whereas payers tended to be more enthusiastic. And I think that the law did modify, it did change to over time, favor physicians more, but it still wasn't enough to really get the broad support of, say, the AMA. In the end, I think it's the policy environment that did change. So walk us through what's going to happen under the new law when a patient unknowingly receives care from an out-of-network provider. How much will the patient owe? Who will determine the amount that the insurer is going to pay? How does it work? Basically, what happens in commercial insurance is these networks are created by payers and 
there's providers that are contracted to be in the network and those that are out of the network. And so under the new law, if patients receive care for emergency care and they're billed from a provider that's out of the network, they will only be responsible for in-network rates. Likewise, if they receive care for a scheduled procedure, non-emergent, from an in-network facility, they will only be responsible for providers billing at in-network rates. So patients will no longer be on the hook for these additional so-called balance bills or additional amounts that providers would not be paid by insurers in the old regime. So instead, what happens, so say a bill is out of network, the provider who's out of network and the insurer have 30 days to resolve what that reimbursement will be for that given bill. And then if they can't come to a conclusion, they go to arbitration. And then under arbitration, the arbiter is asked to consider a few things. They're asked to consider the median in-network rate for that contracted service. They can also consider some issues related to the clinical circumstances or the prior history of contracting between that provider and the insurer. They can also consider the provider's skills and experience, but they're not able to consider the provider's charges, which tend to be much higher. So basically like a final proposal is submitted by the payer and then by the provider, and then the arbiter makes a decision using these criteria. As you say in your article, the law doesn't cover bills from ground ambulance transportation. So why were those services left out and what are the implications of that? It's a great question. I think that, first of all, you'd perhaps be surprised that around 70% of all ambulance rides, ground ambulance rides, are out of network. So patients are getting bills for these. A recent study that we had suggested that the average bill is over $400 for these. So it's a significant burden for patients and something I think should be addressed. Why it wasn't is a great question. Air ambulances were addressed, and that's where you see lots of egregiously high bills, out-of-network bills, so that will no longer be possible. I think that part of it might have to do with this kind of strange environment of ambulances and just the fact that a lot of them are run by municipalities and in a kind of perverse way, some of this balanced billing that is done or out-of-network billing that's done by ambulances is kind of used to fund the local ambulance corps. So I can't speak to precisely why it happens, but there could have been some even like municipal interests that didn't want to address the ambulance out-of-network billing issue. But there's been a committee set up to review the practice of ambulance out-of-network billing And I hope that this law can be amended in the future to incorporate out-of-network billing for ambulances. More broadly, what effect do you think the No Surprises Act is going to have on individual physicians and their reimbursement? I think that for most physicians, there won't be much difference. I think this really will affect the groups like Envision and Team Health, the large staffing groups that have kind of used surprise billing strategically, I think they're going to have much lower reimbursements, uh, lesser ability to charge these high fees. So I think that's positive for most physicians. I think they barely notice from the issues around surprise billing. 
I will say that overall, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that the bill, by changing the negotiating dynamics between physicians and insurers, that it was expected to reduce prices overall, and this would result in government savings. But I think the bulk of that will be for the more serial offenders. I will say that there's other provisions in the bill that could have a more kind of direct effect on everyday physicians, and those have to do with some transparency provisions under the bill, where basically before scheduled procedures, patients must receive a roster of the service providers, their network status, and their expected cost sharing. And that is just not happened today. It's a huge problem, honestly, in American medicine that patients don't know what they have to pay. But having providers actually be able to give this information to patients ahead of time is something that they currently don't do and honestly could be a challenge for some time. So we felt that for your everyday kind of physician that's playing by the rules and not surprise billing, some of these other provisions in the law could have a bigger impact on their everyday practice. And finally, you've begun to answer this already. What effect do you think the law is going to have on healthcare costs more broadly? Are those government projections of savings realizable, do you think? I think so. I think part of the question is that we have evidence from states that have implemented these policies. And what we see is that the policies like work, but their effectiveness depends on how the arbitration rules are set up. So for instance, in New York and New Jersey, the arbiters are supposed to consider the 80th percentile of charges. And they do. And a lot of the bills that get reconciled, adjudicated, are set at the 80th percentile of charges. Whereas in California, arbitration is used less frequently and a surprise bill basically defaults to the average of in-network rates or 125 percentile of Medicare. And that ends up being a much lower payment than what would happen in New York and New Jersey. So I say this because the existing law does not change these state statutes. So the state statutes will stay in place and that exist. And then the new federal law will apply to states that you know, haven't already passed these laws. So I think that the way that arbitration is created and set up in the new law is quite reasonable and will be effective and will have some of the effects that we mentioned before about reducing the size and financial burden of surprise bills to patients. But I think in states that already have kind of statutes that aren't that great, the federal law will be less effective. And so those states might want to think about updating their current legislation. One thing we wondered about a little bit is if the state's ability to undermine the law by passing new legislation that kind of modified these arbitration rules to perhaps favor providers. And that's certainly possible. So what's really interesting about this is that the law, by deferring to existing state policy, basically creates a lot of different natural experiments for researchers to try to understand the effects on prices and networks and how balanced bills get, how surprise bills get adjudicated. So I think there'll be a really active research enterprise trying to do this in the coming years, and hopefully that will inform the next iteration of the policy. But I will say I'm optimistic that overall this is going to be good for patients. 
and it's going to be good for our healthcare system. Thank you, Dr. Ryan.